The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be, bold, be brave, be and be brave. fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasu, your host. Today, Richard Thornton is joining me. He used to work at Scent. Most people know him from his days at Scent and recently just founded an advisory services business. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Seema. It's an honor to be on your podcast. I've followed it for, for quite some time now, and um, I love what you do in terms of putting the spotlight on talent within the industry and, and some of the amazing companies that, that are in the sector. So it's, uh, it, it's great to be part of the show. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. You have had an amazing journey in your career. And I would love just if you could give us, you know, how you've gotten to this point in your career, some, just some tidbits and, you know, stops along the way to be here to ultimately get to this place in your journey. Yeah, sure. I'll try and sort of give you the, uh, the abridged version. But um, I think I should start by saying, like, I'm guessing many of uh, your listeners that I I didn't set out to sort of carve out a career in market research or I guess what is now sort of the, the sort of broader insights industry. I think like many that end up in this wonderful sector, I sort of fell into it by, by sort of chance. It was a sort of an opportunistic decision that I made all those years ago. I actually started out my career uh, kind of tied to, to the industry because my first ever role was a research analyst role. But I started at a company called uh, Cap Ventures. So I did business and marketing at university. You know, wanted to you know get into a career that would sort of utilise ideally some of those sort of um, skills and capabilities I sort of picked up on route. And initially, I joined a business that served the likes of Hewlett Packard, Xerox, Canon, um, kind of the hardware and, and now software players in the sort of imaging space and. It was great because it sort of taught me the, um, you know, the fundamentals, I think, and, and sort of gave me that toolkit that I then utilized extensively, you know, later on in, in my career. So I was a, a research analyst and I was supporting a team of consultants that ultimately were delivering content and insights around subscription syndicated services. So it gave me a, you know, a really good sort of initial exposure to working with, with data and understanding and seeing actually the value that data-driven insights could deliver to organizations. And I was very fortunate to be able to uh, get a lot out of that first role. I traveled extensively, which is a, you know, sort of 20-odd-year-old single, no dependencies here was, was, you know, great fun. And that was long before the novel wore off, uh, wore off, of course, of travel. And I, I did four years kind of learning my craft there and um, moved on to become a consultant and then as I say by chance I sort of fell into the market research industry in, in 2003 so I got a, a call out of the blue by a, a headhunter that had a proposition that was chow chow surveys um, for those that have been in the industry for a while will we'll know chow as being one of the I guess early pioneers of online access panels in certainly 
Europe anyway, and subsequently were acquired by Greenfield Online, which you know many of the, the US listeners will will certainly be you know familiar with. Um, ultimately, that business rolled up into you know what is now um, Taluna. Um, and I didn't know really about you know the market research world. I certainly wasn't aware of this concept of you know consumer panels. But I've seen, of course, as I said, you know the value of data and and insights delivering value in organisations. And I like the sound of the opportunity. It was a big move, right? And I'm a firm believer that fortune sort of favours the brave. And I sort of look back and think, what have been those kind of pivotal decisions or moments in my career? That have really shaped, you know, where I am today, and, and that was one of those. It was first of all picking up that phone to take that call, and then, you know, having, I guess, yeah, the bravery to sort of um, pursue that opportunity and really get out of my comfort zone, leave a pretty secure job that I enjoyed, and join Chow. So I joined to set up their UK business in 2003, and. It was the Wild West back then, right, of the sample world, as you'll know, Seema. Um, just to give listeners a, a reference point, it was the heady days of um, CPIs being, you know, 10 to 12 to 15 pounds for gen pop sample, right? So this is giving you an idea of kind of the, the sort of value that was there to be sort of captured at that point. And I like the business, which was this sort of combination of kind of humans and, and machines or technology. It was a relatively unique proposition, a, a German HQ business looking to, I guess, disrupt, but also reimagine how um, data could be collected. You know, back then, most research was done offline via, you know, CATI or face-to-face, a pen and paper. And, you know, late 90s, early noughties were, were really when this sort of concept of, you know, digital insights and sort of online data collection was was sort of born. And I was fortunate that I sort of timed my my entry into the industry to kind of ride that wave and 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 did that with with Chow so it was a an interesting journey that saw me stay there through you know the acquisition by Greenfield subsequently uh, a, a year of my tenure there being you know under a public company which was super interesting and and eye-opening and I learned a ton there and I was thrown in at the deep end, because I became European Managing Director or co-MD at the ripe old age of, I think, 27, 28. So managing sort of 300 plus employees in Europe and effectively the European arm for Greenfield Online. So very privileged to be put in that position. If I'm being brutally honest, I wasn't ready for the role when I look back now, but I've always been... You figure it out. You figure it out, right? And I've always been a believer that actually doing sometimes outweighs observing and and kind of, you know, all the theory that one can, can sort of, you know, re-research. And I learned my trade the hard way on the job, you know, under extreme pressure, but, you know, thankfully had a lot of bright minds and amazing people, you know, around me. And I was fortunate to work for back then the likes of Keith Price and Hugh Davis that many will know from the industry. And I learned a huge amount, you know, from, you know, people I would consider back then my sort of mentors and it was a brilliant ride. I, I left there in 08. The business was sold to, to Microsoft and I saw that as a natural exit for me, you know, to leave that business. And actually that summer of 08, I picked up a call from Bo Matson, the founder of Sin. And that was a business I knew because we were partners at Chow. And Bo was a guy that I, I liked, he had a lot of fun, respected him. And he, he said, look, come over, you know, have a chat. I flew to Stockholm and 
it just went from there. And before I knew it, in February 2009, I had uh, had joined SIN, which was back then really still a sort of Scandinavian, primarily Swedish-based kind of technology player that was this sort of marketplace. So it was an aggregation model of online panels and then, you know, via, you know, a user interface and then increasingly APIs making access to that aggregated sort of audience at scale available to buyers of of insights for data collection. And it was way before its time back then. You know, I I remember, you know, sitting in front of clients and walking into rooms and seeing a lot of, you know, blank faces and sometimes getting ushered out of the room to say, you know, this model's not going to fly. You know, you're talking about fundamentally changing the way, you know, we as a business think about collecting data, about sourcing and procurement and thinking about our supply chain. And like anything, of course, you know, you have to do the hard yards in terms of market education, you get sort of product market fit. And then we sort of figured out what I would call sales market fit. And it ended up being an amazing kind of journey over 12 years. So I stayed with the business through kind of venture capital sort of ownership. We then sold to uh, private equity and Nordic Capital and then went on an amazing run for sort of five years under Nordic until the culmination, at least for my part of the journey with the business in February of this year. I'm sure many of the listeners would have seen so going public. You know, the IPO and, and taking that business public. And I was very fortunate to be part of that, you know, leadership team that sort of took the business public and thankfully was able to also, you know, plan my exit with the IPO. And um, and that's what I did. So as of February, I I was sort of unemployed, a lot more time on my hands and living the dream of homeschooling pretty quickly, still being at the back end of lockdown. So didn't quite plan it as I would like timing wise, but certainly, sure. you know, grateful for being able to plan, you know, my sort of exit and have sort of control around that, which is great. Yeah, that's fantastic. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. So it's you have some very common themes every time you took your next career move. It always seemed as if it was a bit out of your comfort zone, jumping into something that was leading edge, not necessarily mainstream. How did you evaluate those opportunities? What was that criteria in your mind that says, okay, I'm going to take this? Yes, there's a high amount of risk, but you de-risk it by thinking about different things. Yeah, it's a great question. It's one I've spent a lot of time sort of reflecting upon. And actually, it's something I you know, revisited as I've been sort of pursuing my kind of new sort of work life, which we'll come on to. Um, first and foremost, I've been very people driven in my decision making. I've been, you know, lucky to have, you know, in by Max and the founder of Sin, there was a, a previous mentor a guy called Max Cartellieri, who was the founder of Chow. And I was, you know, taken under, under their wing, you know, when I joined both of those businesses. But it was meeting them in the process of, evaluating the opportunity. Obviously, I tried to do my own due diligence on you know, the companies and the role, but it's really for me about, you know, can I get fired up by working for this, this individual? You know, are they someone that I think I can, you know, soak up a lot of kind of expertise and knowledge from? And is it someone I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to have fun, you know, being around and, and working with? And in Bo and Max, you know, they ticked, you know, firmly that all of those boxes. And I think the thing combined with that is is just instincts and gut feel. It's often kind of either overplayed or underplayed, but actually I think it's really important. You know, your kind of gut feel normally is telling you the right thing. And 
I've sort of tended to follow that combined with, can I buy into the person that's selling me the, the opportunity? Of course, the business model needs to be sound. And, you know, I've been lucky to get into businesses early stage, but they've already got, you know, nice tailwinds. They've evidenced out, you know, there's product market fear and it's really been about scaling, then optimization and then maturing the businesses. So people first and gut instinct. And, you know, I think like anything in life, you've got to throw caution to the wind. I've got quite a good appetite for risk, both in terms of, you know, what I do work-wise and also, and we'll come on to that more from an investment perspective. And so like those, you know, criteria tend to be my sort of framework. Got it. So let's talk about you leaving Scent and, and, you know, obviously you've been on what we call in the States, a hamster wheel for continuously moving the ball forward. I remember seeing you at conferences all the time, just, you know, high energy, high stakes, a lot of time, ton of motivation. And then you leave Scent. What does that feel like? Yeah, it's tough, right? I think it was made slightly easier by the fact that it was planned. I think like anything in life, if something's taken away from you suddenly, I think, you know, the change and the adjustment is is far more brutal. So I had the benefit of, you know, knowing to a certain extent what I was going to be kind of leaving at least and walking into. That said, you know, having now gone through that transition, I don't think anything can really prepare you for kind of the mental adjustment that's required. And if I'm being honest, Seema, I'm still sort of kind of wrestling with that. You know, you're in the weeds, you know, you're really entrenched. It can take over you as, a, as an individual, you know, sometimes to the detriment of, you know, things in your personal life, you know, whether that's family or whatever. And, you know, that definitely at times, you know, happened to me. And so, you know, emotionally, you're, you're all in. And then suddenly, literally night today, you're not. And I think certainly for me, you know, a lot of apprehension. It was bittersweet, right? So I was excited about the what next. And I sort of had a kind of rough idea of what I wanted to do. Now, whether you go and execute on that and it becomes reality is a different thing, of course. But it was kind of, you know, the downside was I knew I'd be leaving, you know, amazing people, people that I consider, you know, close friends and, you know, a business that, you know, was on a great trajectory. And, you know, it was a great job. Uh, it was an amazing role. So I was giving up a lot, but it's a mentally massive adjustment that I'm still working through. You know, you have self-doubt about sort of how things are going to pan out. I don't question my decision to leave whatsoever because I had clarity in my decision, you know, a long time ago. But certainly, you know, mentally, I would say that's been the, the, the sort of biggest challenge over the last six months or so but as every day passes and I think as I get deeper into kind of my new sort of my new kind of project if you like that becomes easier so yeah big change and you know a steep learning curve as well because you know I've gone from sort of being I guess you know a teacher to a student again I'm sort of relearning now a a kind of new craft where you know I'm sort of you know more inexperienced than many I'm operate is very humbling and actually that's good because it keeps you grounded and it gives you perspective and we all need that right so it's been healthy very healthy from that point of view and you realize that actually there's always something ahead of you to kind of learn and, and sort of you know enrich yourself with and that's been the fun part right of kind of this next stage of my professional career and it's given me a lot back now 
from a personal perspective as well, outside of sort of, you know, work life. So, yeah, but very interesting six months and, you know, not as straightforward perhaps as you envisaging it being. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, obviously you were very successful at Synth and you were able to leave and define a new future for yourself, which is fantastic. But I would imagine, you know, you worked with a lot of good people and that like all of a sudden you're not there anymore. And that demand for your help and your insight, and it kind of dissipates over time. And it's almost like you're watching the game from the outside versus being in the game. Exactly that, right? And so there's a few things there. I mean, look, we've all got egos to a certain extent. We all like to be needed and, and sort of wanted and feeling as though we're valuable. And, and you get that, right? When you're in an organization, you're part of something that is growing and every day is different. And suddenly for that not to be there, that's a huge correction you sort of need to do in terms of you know mindset and sort of outlook. So I went through that without a doubt. But equally, as you say, you know, very fortunate to have been in a position to have had, you know, a brilliant journey with Sin, great time at Cal, you know, financially, you know, thankfully, you know, in a good position that now gives me choice. I don't think money at all, you know, makes you as an individual and it shouldn't do, but it gives you choice at least. And it's about what you do with those choices, which is kind of, you know, where I'm at now. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about, you know, you are now kind of creating a new craft, you're investing. Give us a little bit of a perspective on how you spend your time. Yeah, it's been fun. So I sort of always had this sort of desire to sort of glow, go uh, plural and sort of build out a portfolio approach to work. And for me, that meant moving into sort of advisory roles and um, and combining that with ideally getting on some boards and, and taking seats within technology kind of led or enabled businesses and actually then start combining that with some sort of angel investing. So that's really what I've been up to in the last few months. It's sort of ramping up. You know, I wanted to unplug, first of all. As I said, I was living the dream, doing homeschooling, helping out, mucking in at home. Dealing with a pandemic. Exactly. You know, we've all got stories of needing to do that. But very quickly, you know, I wanted to sort of build on the kind of momentum off the back of the IPO, make sure that I didn't leave it too long to get back into you know networking and sort of um, looking for opportunities so I did and I've built up a portfolio of you know a handful of businesses that I'm advising so you know helping and in most of those I've taken a seat on the board in some of them I've invested either alongside you know a um, institutional investor or as part of a sort of kind of angel sort of pre-seed or seed round so that's been fun and a steep learning curve as well on the sort of investor, you know. And I guess the commonalities between the companies, Seema, is that they're all technology-enabled and or SaaS propositions. Most of them are relatively early, so they're all in sort of um, seed or at most Series A kind of um, funding stages. They're all still, you know, founder-led, founder-managed businesses. But the commonalities are, you know, they're despite working in, you know, different sectors and coming at, you know, problems from slightly different angles, it's amazing, you know, when you start to work with, you know, a multitude of companies, at how common the challenges are, right? So a lot of them at this point have an MVP in terms of their product or platform. They, for the most part, have evidenced out sort of traction in terms of user adoption and have that product market fit. 
what they're now looking to do is figure out the sales market fit. So how to take the proposition in a more repeatable, scalable manner to market. In most cases, they're sort of entrenched here in the UK, but they're obviously looking at sort of growth opportunities um, internationally and or globally. So that sort of expansion uh, piece, the sort of lift and drop kind of um, strategy play is another pillar. And then, you know, sales hiring, sales efficiency and, and sort of customer success. So they're the sort of, I guess, fundamentals under what you probably could term as sort of commercial excellence, if you like, that I am bringing to the table and sort of helping, you know, the founders in terms of scale. And it's great fun. You know, I love the diversity of working with different businesses. I love being inspired by the founders and the leadership teams. I'm proud as well that more than half my portfolio are women founder, women led um, tech (laughs) businesses, which as we all know is, you know, uh, under-indexed in, in tech and particularly with market research as well. So that's been really, really good to be part of. And, you know, I'm a big um, supporter of, you know, uh, driving um, better representation, diversity in the industry. And there's a huge amount of great effort and initiatives that are ongoing now, which is wonderful. And it's good to be involved in companies that are, you know, part of that sort of, um, you know, change and transition that we're all trying to drive. So that's been a sort of additive kind of part of the companies I've ended up getting involved in. So are you like working, you know, a five day week? Are you like, is there a schedule that you adhere to? Or are you kind of building into it? Yeah, I, I'm sort of building into it. So I, you know, I'm, obviously it's, I'm learning, right. And I don't, thing at all I've kind of mastered finding the right balance I'm not quite sure yet what that right balance is I think from a portfolio perspective I'm getting towards for me at least a kind of upper limit of what I would be comfortable to commit to I think there's still room to kind of engage with other companies but I I don't want to you know dilute I think you know the value I hope I bring and the time commitment that each business needs so I haven't really got into that rhythm yet. I try and have a more relaxing Friday, if I'm being honest. Good for you. Yeah. So the longer weekend. I'm also quite religious now about dropping the kids off at school and picking one of them up. We've got two boys, Stanley and Barney, that are five and eight. So that to me is a wonderful thing that I can now do that I wasn't always in a position to be able to. So I sort of, uh, you know, I think about my working week in terms of being agile in that regard rather than, you know, fixed days or sort of hours. And you know how it goes, Seema. It's, you know, when stuff needs to get done and conversations need to happen, you you make sure you're on the end of a phone or a video call, right? But it's a nice, healthy balance right now. My wife would probably tell you that I'm working too much again and should probably um, scale down a bit. But I think certainly from a work-life balance, a mental kind of well-being perspective, I'm sort of probably the best place I've been for some time, actually, which is good. Wasn't your wife pregnant when you guys were in California? Was that right? So she wasn't, but we had a uh, second Barney. He was, um, yeah, he was like eight, nine months old at the time when we... I remember that. Relocated there for a year, which was a lot of fun. So um, yeah, she loved it. She, she wasn't working. She had the best social life ever over there. And it was me that was doing all the hard yards. So that worked out well for her. Um, oh, that's funny. It was a great experience for us, yeah. So looking back... Richard, any, like, what are your key takeaways? You know, I have kind of some core beliefs that I have that kind of guide my decision-making both personally and professionally, you know, you've had an amazing career thus far. What are some of the kind of 
core beliefs you hold near and dear to your heart? There's a few, and I've obviously, particularly over the more recent times, been afforded, you know, the kind of time to sort of reflect a lot, actually, and, and sort of, yeah, think about this. And there's a few things. So I think the first one's possibly controversial, particularly for people that sort of know me, because um, I'm not one that actually is particularly comfortable sort of in the limelight. I'm more of a sort of introvert, really, and quite happy to sort of operate more in the background, despite sort of having been a this sort of face for both Sint and Chow at various times. It, it was never something that I was ever overly comfortable with, actually. But the thing sort of underneath that that I, I've learned from the entire experience is um, it's quite a selfish one. It's put yourself first. And the reason I say that is I always think about this sort of triangle between family and loved ones, work, and then yourself. And I think it's really difficult to find that sort of balance of what that triangle ultimately should be shaped like, right? But I think the, the sort of firmest point should be yourself because you spoke about it earlier. This industry is full of amazing people. It's one of those industries, and I mean this in the nicest way, that sort of sucks you in, right? And it's very difficult to get out of. And that's a good reason. Brilliant people, amazing companies, and you know we're in a period of significant transformation transformation that has played out in other verticals but perhaps arguably has been slower to come to fruition in kind of market research or insights but I think we'd all agree that you know disruption and the pace of the industry is moving at a greater rate than we've probably all ever seen but within that it can be you know brutal in terms of you know hours commitment compromises and so you know put yourself first because I think if you do that, then the other things will take care of themselves. You know, the family and loved ones will be in a good place. Work, you know, will benefit because you'll have much more of a positive mindset and you'll be able to contribute far better. So I think look after yourself first and foremost. That would be the first thing. I think secondly, and I've said this recently when being asked the question of, you know, what are important traits to have as a leader? And I think just as a person, frankly, in in work, and it's, I hate this kind of argument to be successful. You can't be nice, right? I hear it all the time. You know, you need to rule with an iron fish. You've got to be sort of direct and and sort of aggressive and very decisive. You you need to have conviction, but why can't you, you know, be successful and be nice? Um, Isn't that just a good, you know, basic human trait to have, right? Is be empathetic, have respect. And if you do that, surely you're going to take more people with you on the journey. That's another one for sure. And I'd like to think, you know, I've, I've sort of lived by that. I was, you know, very humbled and sort of got that validated when, you know, when I left SIN, you know, blown away by, you know, the sort of reaction I got from within the business and more broadly and, you know, very grateful for that. But it was validation that actually, yeah, you know, you sort of try to do it the right way. And so, you know, I just encourage everyone to sort of, you know, think about that, particularly off the back of the 18 months we've all had with the pandemic. Now, more than ever before, it's the time to, you know, be respectful and try and do things the right way. The other one is don't underplay timing and luck, right? Yes, you know, IQ, EQ, hard work, you know, definitely shouldn't be underrated. But timing and luck, you know, play a significant part, I think, in most people's career. They certainly had in mine. You know, I was fortunate to stumble into, you know, the online research space in the Wild West back in 03, And, you know, was able to kind of ride that wave, as I say, you know, four, five, six years when it was sort of the kind of boom years. 
And, you know, I and, you know, certainly seen along the way, you know, have got lucky at times, as most businesses do. And I think it's about understanding that. And you've still got to capitalise, of course. You know, nothing's a gimme. But, you know, don't sort of, don't downplay, you know, how important timing can be. And, you know, when you get good fortune, you know, ride it and capitalise on it. And then the other one is, and really the pandemic has kind of put this more into focus, certainly for me, is I think empathy right now is really important. You know, it, it, understanding that, and we've seen this with COVID, you know, we've all got kind of things going on sort of around our lives outside of work and it's sort of having an appreciation and flexibility of that. And I'm seeing some great things businesses are doing right now in terms of, you know, sort of caring for employees, mental well-being and being a lot more kind of supportive and agile about how one needs to work and what expectations are. And I think that's a great thing because culture and people make companies, period. You know, I've worked for technology businesses all my career, but it's always come back to the people that have made the organisations. It was the same at Chow, no different at Sin. And that's to do with, you know, thinking of employee engagement, thinking about creating the right culture, you know, mostly that, in my view, you know, should happen organically, but you can sort of, you know, curate that to a certain extent as well. And then it's underpinning it with just, you know, solid values. And that needs to happen, you know, from sort of leadership down. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I actually think, you know, when COVID hit, everybody was like, okay, we have no idea what the impact is here financially, but we are going to, most companies, take care of our employees. Because it goes from not a financial, like, is my revenue growing, but more of a, I have mouths to feed. Like people are dependent on this job to feed their families. And that was a big shift, right? In terms of. 100%. And the, I would say the judge of a good business and leader is not, you know, in times of, you know, high growth and when everything is smelling of roses, right? It, it's at those kind of inflection points when, you know, the, the business or the, you know, the market or, you know, the economics climate is such that you quickly fall into, you know, challenging times. And that response to that is the mark of a good individual or a good company. And I think the market research industry has been very blessed by having a lot of people with just good bones, right, and companies that do care. And so there's been a lot of great examples about, you know, how to do the right thing when it matters. And and that's, I think, another reason why people tend to stay in this industry for a long time, right? Because it is one of those industries that, you know, is competitive and transformative, but equally it's full of, you know, I think like-minded people that, that sort of want to build, you know, businesses and an industry in, in a kind of ethical way. Yes. Agreed. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think now, you know, as I don't know, we're not, we haven't come out of COVID yet, but we're starting to maybe see some light. It'll be interesting. I think business will will have to make decisions like how much can our employees actually handle given the stress of the last 18 to 24 months. And, you know, I think that's the next big decision for many leaders, because obviously you want to grow your business, you want accelerated growth if those are your goals, but it's really looking at your employees and saying, are they ready for this? Or do we need to kind of balance those two objectives a bit? Yeah, it really is. And, and it's interesting because I'm sort of sitting on the, the other side now, sort of on boards. And, you know, one of the key topics, so there's a few, I mean, you know, ESG and sort of environmental social policy is one, but, you know, employee well-being, culture and employee engagement is the other, right? 
and I'm seeing a lot more investments and resources being put towards, you know, these areas. And that's a great thing. And, you know, it will take time, of course. But the fact that, you know, at board level now, these things really matter. And actually, increasingly, you know, in the investor community, these are some of the sort of softer kind of traits or kind of characteristics of a company that, you know, investors are looking at, right, and want and expect to see now in in companies they're going to invest in. So we will start to, you know, see a lot of change in this area. But you're right, it's kind of pivotal moment, I think, these next six to nine months as we and the world comes out of the pandemic, you know, touch wood, that is the case. And, you know, we start to sort of get our mindset into being a bit more sort of forward looking and longer term in our planning, because it's been very much in the moment uh, for most of us for 18 months. Yeah, for sure. Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to keep in touch with you and continue to collaborate and see what interesting new things you continue to do. Thank you. No, it's been a pleasure. Really fun to chat, Seamus. So thank you. Thank you. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.